Scripture passage for our sermon text today. We are in the fourth gospel, the gospel according to John chapter 4. John 4, 19 to 26. And what we're doing today and over the next, this week and over the next four weeks is a brief series on reformed biblical worship. We're going to be talking about what kind of worship, not only that God wants from us, but the kind of worship that is prescribed for us in Scripture. We want to make sure that our worship is pleasing to God and acceptable to God. And the way we do that is we look to the Scriptures and see what has God said about worship. So that's what we're going to do today and over the next four weeks, Lord willing. We're going to look at Reformed Biblical Worship, and today we set the foundation, a new way to worship. So if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. This is the Gospel according to John chapter 4. We're going to read together verses 19 to 26. This is God's holy word for us, his people. The woman said to him, speaking to Jesus, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word today. Father, we give you thanks that you have revealed your scriptures to us, that you have disclosed your mind and will to us in the pages of Holy Scripture this infallible and inspired word you've given to us to teach us, to instruct us. And we ask today that this would be the means through which we hear your very voice speaking to us, that you would be our teacher, that you would show us what Jesus is teaching in this passage. You would help us to understand and that you would give us hearts of faith to believe and receive and give us eagerness to go forward from this day and obey all that you've taught us about worship. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. When I was an interim minister back at Overbrook EPC in Gaffney, South Carolina... I faced a very unexpected problem about our worship services. The, the 
pastor that was there when Sarah and I first joined the church had taken a call to another church. And I was asked to step in to fill the void until it was time for the, our search committee to find another pastor. And I was happy to do that, excited and eager to do that. Almost no seminary students get a chance to do that. And so for the next eight months or so, I was the interim minister. Well, the pastor who had been there for eight years had sort of kept, kept things under, under control. But in his absence, uh, different factions thought that I could be you know, bought and bribed and easily manipulated. That's, that's pejorative language. It wasn't nearly that bad. But I did have people whispering in my ears. And here was the main issue. The older folks, senior citizens, the, the elderly, all the older people in the church, they wanted all contemporary worship songs. With a full band, they wanted drums, they wanted guitars, they wanted... All the people up there, they wanted it contemporary stuff we hear on the radio. Let's get it pumping. Let's get it rocking in here like we used to. And all the younger folks, college-age students, teenagers, and young adults, they all wanted the more traditional hymns. This felt very backwards to me. Like I'd slipped into some kind of upside-down world or something. And... I, this, and I called the pastor and I said, what have you done? <laughs> you didn't tell me about this. You didn't warn me that these factions were going to be saying, hey, why don't you go get a drum set? And hey, how about you go get the guitars? And, you know, why don't we get some more energy and livelihood? And you're not these old dusty hymns. And I'm like, you grew up with these hymns. What are you talking about? Dusty hymns. And the younger folks were like, yes, dusty hymns. Let's more dust, more hymns. It was very confusing. It was very confusing. But one of the blessings of being the interim pastor well, or inter interim minister is I didn't have to solve this issue. I just had to stall until the new pastor arrived <laughs> and let him deal with it. And that is precisely what I did. And then I moved away and let him have it. Now, no matter where you come down on the issue of music style or music selection and all that stuff, everyone has some opinions about what they want, what they like, what they prefer and expect in public worship. The so-called worship wars are a very real and perhaps to many of you a familiar reality that most churches face to some extent sometimes. And I imagine that over the many years of this congregation's history, we've been no exception. I imagine there have been worship disputes here before. It is an issue, unfortunately, that can become quite heated and divisive as well-meaning church members compete with each other and with their church leaders to get their way in worship. But before we consult ourselves and like-minded friends and ask, what do I want to see in worship? We should stop and ask a more important question. What does God want to see in worship? Not, if I had my way, what would Sunday morning look like? But if God had His way, what would Sunday morning look like? 
And I wonder how often have you stopped and seriously pondered these sorts of questions? What kind of worship does God want? Does God ever reject our worship? Does it even matter how we worship just so long as we are sincere? Or has God given us a standard for how we ought to worship? These are vitally important questions in the midst of our worship wars. And in fact, I would submit to you these questions strike at the very heart of Christianity itself. Now that might sound like exaggeration, hyperbole, just to get you interested in the rest of this sermon. The very heart of Christianity, well, I better listen. Now that is good rhetoric, but that's not just over-the-top speech. I, I, I think that these questions of worship really do strike very close to the heart of Christianity itself. And the reason I think that is because of statements from people like the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Listen to what Peter says. Here Peter is speaking to his audience, Christians scattered in several different regions in modern-day Turkey, and he's addressing them as the church. He's describing the church in these verses, and he says to the church, You, the church, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, speaking of the Father, a people for his own possession, his treasured possession, a treasured possession of God. Why? Answer, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now... You have received mercy. You hear what he's saying? You are a chosen race. That's election. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are the people of God. You, at one time, you weren't the people of God. You had no mercy. Now, you've received God's mercy. You are his chosen people. You belong to him. You're God's special treasured possession. Why? So that you can worship so you can proclaim the excellencies, the perfections of the one who called you, Christian, out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see, worship is the primary purpose for which God has a church in the earth. It's not the only purpose, but it is the most important one. It's the main mission. We exist for two main purposes, worship and witness. Worshiping God on his day, once out of every seven, the Christian Sabbath. And in the other six days, great commission, witness. Worship and witness is why this church, the Forks, why any church, why God's people are in the earth. And why we're not just converted and then ascend into heaven. The reason we're here is to worship and to witness we are here to proclaim the excellencies of our God. And so, if this is our most primary purpose, we better be very careful to get these questions right. 
How are we supposed to fulfill that great purpose of worshiping God? Well, in our passage this morning, we discover that these so-called worship wars have been around forever. They're at minimum 2,000 years old. Jesus, in the context of John 4, is passing through Samaria on his way from Judea up to Galilee. And you can think of these as regions or maybe as counties. Judea is in the south, Galilee's in the north, and sandwiched between is little Samaria. And so Jesus has to go through Samaria to get back up to Galilee if he wants to take the most direct route. And as he's traveling, he's in Samaria and he runs into the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, famous story. He runs into the woman at the well in the town of Sychar. And in the course of their conversation, the woman raises the issue of proper worship. You see that in verse 20 of our text. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you, and the you there is plural, meaning not just you, Jesus, but you, the Jews, you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And then she stops. And she doesn't say, what do you think about that? She just sort of leaves it open-ended and let, waits for Jesus to respond. You know, our ancestors all worshipped on this mountain. We had our temple. We have our holy place. And you Jews down there in Judea say we should worship down there. What about it? <laughs> it's like she's kind of, what do you think? What are you, you going to say to that? And it just leaves it open-ended and provokes a response. She's wanting to engage in worship wars. Well, we think we should worship here and you say it's over there. You see, this is the topic of the rest of our passage that we read here in John 4. And as Jesus addresses this worship wars question from this woman, this Samaritan woman, he teaches us a new way to worship. A new way to worship. And this new way to worship introduces no fewer than five changes to the way worship was conducted under the old covenant. And these five changes are the five fundamental principles of biblical reformed worship for the new covenant church. And so let's look at our passage. Let's look at our text and let's look at these one at a time. First things first, new realities. This new way to worship, it's based on new realities. We see this here in verses 19 at the beginning and at the end in verses 25 and 26. This woman sees that Jesus is a prophet in verse 19. It says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And the next words out of her mouth are, our fathers worshipped here and you say we should worship there. In other words, the fact that she recognizes that Jesus is a prophet tells us that she sees him as someone who's qualified to speak to this issue. Someone who's qualified to settle the issue. Well, we think we should worship here. You think it should be there. What does God think? I don't know. Let's ask the man of God who can say, thus says the Lord. One or the other. Or neither. Or both. What's the answer? The prophet can tell you. She sees that Jesus is a prophet. And she sees him as someone who can settle this issue. And she's not wrong. He can settle this issue. At the end of our text, verses 25 and 26, this woman confesses her faith that at the end, in some time, who knows how long in the future, that at the end, one day, Messiah will come and he'll tell us everything. Look at verse 
25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. One day, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus responds, I who speak to you am he. The one speaking to you, that's me. I'm the Messiah. I am that prophet you recognized. I'm the one who can answer these questions. And the word there for tell, in verse 25, the Greek word there for tell, when he comes, he will tell us all things. That's a word that other places means to preach, proclaim, or just simply to inform. That when Messiah gets here, he's going to preach to us everything. He'll proclaim everything to us. He's going to tell us everything. The Messiah gets to tell us everything when he gets here. It's his day. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the Holy One of God. And when he comes, he gets to set the rules. He gets to set the standard. He's going to tell us how it is. He'll settle this entirely. And Jesus says, that's right, and that's me. I am the one who is going to get to define worship from here on out. You see, the Messiah's arrival, as this woman understands, inaugurates a new age with new realities. All things, now that Messiah is here, all things will be reformed, reorganized, reconstituted, redefined around Christ, His perfect person and His finished work, who He is and what He came to accomplish and what He says. All worship must now be reformed around these new realities when Messiah gets here. And in fact, that's what Moses told us to do back in Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 19. The Lord says to Moses, and he says, Tell Israel that I am going to raise up a prophet like you from among your brothers. And everyone has to listen to him. And if they don't listen to him, they're cut off. So the greater Moses... The one who is to come. The one who supersedes Moses. That's the Messiah. And he's the one who gets to tell Israel how it's going to be. And that includes worship. The new realities of the Messianic age will be the foundation of this whole new way of worship. Second, seeing that Jesus is a prophet, she asks a question about the proper place to worship. You saw that in verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now, this site she's talking about, this mountain, she says, that is Mount Gerizim. And remember, they're in the town of Sychar. Now, Sychar is related to the Old Testament city of Shechem. And Mount Gerizim has a very prominent place in the Pentateuch. It was in Shechem that Abraham built an altar to the Lord and worshipped him there. It was in Shechem that Jacob built an altar to the Lord and worshipped him there. It was on the mountain overlooking Shechem, Mount Gerizim, where when Israel crossed the, Reds, uh, the uh, Jordan River and came into the, the Promised Land, you had part of Israel went up on Mount Gerizim and the other part went on an adjacent mountain. And from one peak to another, they proclaimed the blessings and curses in this marvelous, magnificent covenant renewal ceremony where they ratified in the new land, we are the people of God and this is His law and we will obey and curses upon us if we don't and blessings if we do. 
Mount Gerizim was a very significant holy place. And in fact, less than a hundred years before this conversation between Jesus and this woman takes place, there was a temple on the mountain. An old ancient temple still standing there on the mountain. It had been destroyed by a, an invading army by this point. But worship was taking place in a temple in Samaria, not in Jerusalem. For these Samaritans. And now she's saying, look how holy and special and sacred this place. Of course this is where we ought to worship. Our ancestors worshipped here. And those ancestors include Abraham and Jacob. Ha ha, what do you say to that? It's a good argument. And Jesus' answer in, in verse uh, 22 is, you don't know what you're talking about. He probably even said it with a little bit of that accent. You don't know what you're talking about. And we'll come back to that. But she makes this argument on this mountain. She's appealing to this rich tradition of worship that goes back to Jacob and Abraham and the crossing of the Jordan. How could it be wrong to worship God here? Why is Jerusalem the only place we get to do that? Well, Jesus points to the new realities that he is bringing when he answers her. He says in verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Catch that. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You see, these new realities bring in new locations. The new realities bring new locations for worship. He says the hour is coming. The time is about to dawn. The time is here on its way. And in the new hour, the location doesn't count anymore. Neither on this mountain, neither in Jerusalem is where worship takes place. The worship that we give to God the Father. See, the worship of God will no longer in the new hour, in the new age, be tied to a local shrine or a temple. And that's what worship was. It was, we set up our temple, and then you guys come. Come to the temple. It was a come-see type of worship. Everybody go to Mount Gerizim and crowd into the temple. Everybody come to the shrine. Everybody gather around the idol. Everybody look at... And this is how all ancient worship was. It was temple-based, shrine-focused, and idol-based. Now, of course, they didn't have idols in Israel, but it was still tied to a local place, a shrine or a temple either in Jerusalem or in Samaria on Mount Gerizim. But that is over. No longer will the worship of God be tied down like that to one place, to one sacred object. Now in this new hour, in light of these new realities of the Messiah, of Christ, now we're told we are the temple of God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17, and then in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. He says that you are the temple of the living God, a place for God to dwell by His Spirit. And the church is not confined to a building or a temple or a shrine. It's the people spread abroad throughout the earth. And now it's not based on where you're standing. You don't have to be in the right holy spot where you take off your shoes like in front of the burning bush or in the Jerusalem temple. It's not based on where you are. Now God can be worshipped the way He wants to be worshipped everywhere. 
We don't need temples and shrines and pictures and statues and idols and anything else that's associated either with pagan temple worship or Jewish temple worship in the ancient world. In fact, this is something that was prophesied. This was, in fact, prophesied in the Old Testament. In Malachi chapter 1, uh, verse 11... Malachi 1.11, he says, the prophet says, For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. In every place, people will offer me pure offering. Offerings, pure worship in every place. And we see this also in in the book of Zephaniah, the prophet Zephaniah in chapter 2, verse 11. It helps if you know where things are in your Bible. (laughs) There's Zechariah and Zephaniah. You've got to watch out. Zephaniah 2.11. He says, The Lord will be awesome against them. Speaking of the idols. The Lord will be awesome against them, for He will famish all the gods of the earth. And to Him shall bow down, each in its place, all all the lands of the nations. He's going to... Put an end to the idols, all the foreign gods, all their temples and shrines. That day will pass. And in the hour that is coming, Jesus says, we're not tied down to place. We now can worship God in the whole earth. We are the temple of God. We are His people. We're filled with His presence and His glory. And we can offer Him worship wherever we are. Pure worship. Every place. And as our worship spills out of the church in every land, among every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and all the nations are discipled and bow the knee to Christ, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. As Isaiah prophesies and as Micah also prophesies, that the worship of God will fill the earth. The glory of God will be in every place. And that hour where that begins is in the coming of Christ. The new realities of the hour of the Messiah brings about these new locations. Number three, new dimensions. The new realities mean new locations and new dimensions of worship. Again, Jesus points in our passage to these new realities that he brings, ushering in the new age for the basis of this new way to worship. Look at this in verse 23. He repeats himself, but the hour is coming, and then he says, and is now here. The hour is coming, and it's arrived. We're in it now. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, For the Father is seeking such people 
to worship him. Jesus here shows the new dimensions of worship, spirit and in truth. This is in contrast to the old covenant worship that was based in the temple. When you change the location, you change how the worship takes place. You change the kind of worship. In the temple, a certain form of worship was practiced. When it's not tied to that place, it's no longer tied to those practices. They both go away together. Under the old covenant, worship was a temple-based, priest-oriented or priest-operated sacrificial system with purity codes and cleanliness rituals and holiness rites. Now, worship under this old covenant form certainly included the heart of the worshiper. That wasn't unimportant. It wasn't unmentioned in the Old Testament. And it was important, but it wasn't the central focus. The central concern under old covenant temple worship was for correctly observing the laws and customs of Israel's temple system and the festal calendar, keeping the holy days. And the whole point was you work the system, stick to the letter, sacrifice the specific animal in the specific right way on the right day at the right time of day with the right person and you have to kill it in exactly the right way and then the way you butcher it and offer the pieces of this animal has to be done exactly right and if you work that system God is pleased because what he wants is worship by the letter work the system Offer the sacrifices correctly, and whether my heart is in it or not, doesn't matter. God has been worshipped. Again, that wasn't universally, the heart doesn't matter. That wasn't what everybody believed. Certainly, there were very holy and pious and devout Jewish worshippers of God whose hearts were engaged. But was that an ultimate requirement? Was it the ultimate concern? It was not. That's not what the priest cared about. The priest didn't say, how is your heart, before it sacrificed the animal. Because it didn't matter. But Jesus says, that's not what true worship consists of in the new age. In the new hour. Notice what he said there in verse 23. He talked about the true worshipers. The true worshipers. That is, those who have the real worship. The authentic worship that God is really interested in. The worship God really is interested in is worship that's in spirit and in truth. He says in verse 24, God is spirit. God is spirit. And so he has no need of these outward and physical sacrifices. If God is spirit, he doesn't need the blood of bulls and calves and goats. He doesn't need grain and incense and these sorts of offerings. Like, he, like he's hungry and he wants to eat. <laughs> like he needs to smell steak in order to have a good time when you're worshiping him. He, doesn't, he stands in no need of these things. He, God is a spirit. He's a spiritual being. And so the true dimensions of worship are spirit and truth. And the true worshipers offer this kind of worship in these new dimensions. Those sacrifices, the old covenant worship, was not unimportant. In fact, God had said, this is how you do it, and you better stick to it. So it was important that they do it by the book. But they missed the purpose whenever they put all their concern in getting the letter right and leaving the heart behind. 
leaving spirit and truth behind. Those sacrifices, that whole sacrificial system, that was all temporary. Those were temporary rites and rituals anticipating the work of Christ, pointing the worshiper to his sacrifice. And we see now that worship in spirit and in truth means this. Since God is spirit, since God is spirit, the true way to engage with him in worship is with our spirit according to his truth. Since God is spirit, the true way to engage with him in worship is with our spirit according to his truth. In Romans chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says, I serve or I worship God with my spirit through the gospel. He worships God and serves God with his spirit through the gospel. That spirit and that word of the gospel is truth. Spirit and in truth. Jesus condemns the Pharisees and the scribes for their empty ritualistic worship. In Matthew 15, 7 to 9, he says, quoting the prophet Isaiah, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. We don't want worship that's in vain, empty, useless, of no account to the Father. We want the true worship Jesus speaks of. We want it in spirit and in truth. And the Psalms are full of this sort of reminder that God's not ultimately interested in the sacrifices, in the animals, in the rituals. While those are important and He did command them, what He's ultimately interested in is, are you worshiping me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Heart, soul, mind, and strength. Is your mind engaged with me? Does it, is it thinking about my truth and clinging to my truth and believing my truth? Is your heart engaged? Does it love and long for me? Does your soul delight and cherish me? With your strength, are you spending your strength when you're here in worship to meet with me, to engage with me? That's the Spirit engaging with God who is Spirit, based firmly on His truth. We don't have time to look up these passages, but check these out. Psalm 24, 3 through 6. Psalm 50, 12 to 15. Psalm 51, 15 to 17. Where, it's, where David says the sacrifices of God aren't animals and, and this sacrificial stuff. The true sacrifice is a broken and contrite heart before the Lord. Or Psalm 145, 18, where the psalmist says, God is near to all those who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. When we worship, do we want God to be with us, near us, drawing into us, present, engaging with us? Do we want Him here when we worship? then we'd better call upon Him in truth. It better be saturated in truth. New realities mean worship takes place in new locations. It means worship has to now take on new dimensions, spirit and truth. And now fourth, new standards. When the Messiah is here, there's new standards for worship. 
Now that we've seen the new realities, the new locations, the new dimensions of our worship, now we have to face the question, okay, great, but what are we supposed to do when we get together on Sunday? Like specifically, what are we supposed to do? We've got to do something. We come into the room and we don't just sit here and just, just sit and let our spirits do stuff and our bodies sit frozen. Do we even need to be in person or, or watching? Do we even have to be in present at all for our spirits to worship God? Well, we gotta, God tells us to get together, to meet once a week minimum on the Lord's Day, to worship publicly, corporately, together. Well, when we do that, what are we supposed to do? And who gets to decide? Well, these questions, what are we supposed to do and who gets to decide, those are the last two points of our sermon. Jesus points us in answer to the first question, what are we supposed to, or who gets to decide? Who gets to decide, Jesus tells us. He points us to the new standards of the new way to worship. Notice this in verses uh, 23 and 24. It says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for because the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is looking for true worship from true worshipers. He's searching, questing, hunting on the lookout. Where are the true worshipers? Where is the true worship that I want? He's seeking worshipers of such a kind. It says, God, the Father is seeking such people. In Greek, that such means of such a character, of such a quality, of such a sort or kind. Worshippers that are this kind of way, who offer worship that's this kind of way. The Father gets to seek who worships Him. And we ought to know what kind of worship is that, that He's looking for. The Father gets to decide the worship He wants, not us. God gets to tell us what kind of worship He likes. What kind of worship he seeks, what kind he prefers, what kind he'd like to see on Sunday. Not what's my favorite music or what color this should be or when, how many times we stand or how many prayers there are or whatever it is, the things we quibble about. The main thing is, what, kind of, what are you seeking, God? What do you want to see today? What kind of worship do you like? Is there any kind you don't like? Because I want to make sure I avoid that kind. And then in verse 24 it says, God is spirit and those who worship him must, must worship in spirit and truth. It's a requirement. The Greek word's very specific. It means required to. You are required to do this, to worship this way. So God is actually giving us a standard. He is looking for a certain kind of worship and he tells it it must be a certain way. God gets to decide. Now, I said we'd come back to Jesus' answer to this woman who said, well, we worship on this mountain, you worship down there, who's right? What do you say to that, Jesus? And Jesus' response in verse 22 is, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, you worship what you do not know. Your worship has ignorance built into it because you don't know something. You're missing something. We worship, we the Jews, worship what we know because salvation is from the Jews. What's, what's he getting at? He's getting at the fact that the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as Bible. 
And nothing else was Bible. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Psalms, Daniel, none of that's Bible. It's interesting. It's good literature. It's not Bible. Only Moses. Only the first five books. And so he's telling her in no uncertain terms here, you're missing something because you're rejecting some revelation from God. You don't understand how to worship because you're working on a truncated slice of biblical revelation. You've got Moses, and that's awesome. You need Moses. He's so important. But what about all this other stuff? You're missing some stuff. So your worship's incomplete. It's not full in its understanding. He says you worship what you don't know. You don't fully understand what, how to do it because you're not working with the full Bible. And now, that actually comes down to us in the same way. Because Christ comes and He gives us new realities. And with those new realities is new revelation. We have New Testament. So if we just try to worship God with the Old Testament, we're missing some stuff. Now, we don't know how to worship. <laughs> we don't understand. The new standard comes in the new revelation of the New Testament. We need the full light of biblical revelation. That's the standard. A whole Bible. A whole Bible-based kind of worship. In light of these new realities in Christ. In light of the new locations. The new dimensions. We have new standards. We want to worship in truth. Who gets to decide what that is? Jesus says, He's the truth. <laughs> and then He says in John 17, 17, Sanctify them. In His prayer to the Father, He says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The word of the living God gets to be our standard. That's how we know what kind of worship God seeks. That's how we know what kind of worship we must offer to Him. It is Bible-based, Word of God-based, truth-saturated. So we better get Bible into everything we do in worship. Because without it, we don't know for sure if it's what God wants. Because we don't have a word from God that tells us that's what He wants. We're just making it up at that point. Through our sincerity or good intentions or well-meaning or what we feel like. It can't be based on what we feel like or what we prefer or what we grew up with. It's got to be based on what God says and what God wants. And that brings us to the end. New ceremonies. In this new covenant temple, the church, the God who is spirit dwells. And there must be, and there he must be worshipped by our spirit according to his truth, which is revealed in Christ and in the Word, especially the New Testament. Now, a new temple requires new ceremonies, new things we do there, new things we do when we get together. And those new ceremonies must conform to the new dimensions of worship. And they must properly align with the new realities of the new covenant. Now this word that's used throughout this passage for worship is a word that means obeisance or homage. Now obeisance is not a word we use very commonly. Homage we might be a little more familiar with. But obeisance we don't normally use. And what this word is driving at is, it means an act or expression that shows or demonstrates reverence and awe for someone that we see as superior to us. The word literally means to bow down to. 
or to prostrate yourself in front of someone, on your face in front of someone. And it's a word that's not just used for what we do to God. It's a word that's used for what we do before a king or a mighty emperor or a great prince or someone of tremendous authority and rank and status and importance. We do some kind of physical demonstration that shows reverence, bowing or kneeling or something. We express with our bodies, publicly and visibly, honor, homage, obeisance, veneration, reverence for someone. Now, when you do it in a religious context, to a God, it's worship. So, what we should do in worship is not sit still and just let our spirits invisibly do stuff with God. No, we come to engage in a public demonstration of reverence. We have to do something with our bodies. So this last point is very, very critical. Worship in spirit and truth does not leave the body behind. It can't. Rather, it calls us to use and engage our bodies in new ways when we gather to worship. Romans 12.1, Paul says, I beseech you in light of the mercies of God to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's Old Testament temple sacrifice language. But we're supposed to do it with our bodies, which he says is our spiritual worship. Worship in spirit does not leave the body behind. So let's conclude this way. Our worship must remain physical and embodied because we are physical embodied creatures. When we come together on the Lord's day, we have to do something. We've got to do physical embodied things as a congregation together. Now what those things are we will, will be the focus of the rest of this series. To let you know where we're going next. But everything that we ought to do in worship must begin here in John 4. It must begin here in these biblical principles taught by Jesus. I'm going to summarize them and close. Christ inaugurates the new realities, the new covenant, the messianic age through his life, death, and resurrection. Worship now takes place in new locations and in new dimensions. As the church becomes the global temple wherein God dwells to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. When we come together, when we gather for worship, the word of God determines and dictates what we do in worship. Not preference or feeling, but the word of God and the truth of God. Because God alone is the one who gets to decide what true and acceptable worship is. And finally, these new realities require new ceremonies crafted according to God's word and truth so that we are sure to give God the worship he really seeks. This, these five fundamental principles, these five huge changes that the coming of the Messiah introduces to our worship, this is the basis and foundation for what we should do as a church. This is the new way to worship the basis that Jesus gives for biblical, reformed worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark when it comes to how to be saved, how to live a godly life, how to obey your will, how to evangelize, how to grow a church, how to be a church. 
who the officers are, what we're supposed to do. You've not left us in the dark about any of that stuff. And thank God you have not left us in the dark about this most important matter of how we're supposed to worship you. Thank you for opening up your mouth and speaking your truth to us. And I pray that in the coming weeks, we would be so sold out and excited and eager and zealous for your truth and your word to worship you the way you really want to be. That you would make us eager and full of anticipation to be in your presence, to base all of our worship together on your word, to make sure that we know that you are pleased with what you see and hear when we gather together. May our worship continue to be pleasing in your sight and give us the eagerness to make sure everything we do is based squarely and solidly on your truth as we seek to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.